0: Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for the Public Broadcasting. But as you can see on this map, there are a number of undecided states, of the Democrats in Pennsylvania, a little concerned about Sarah Palin's uh, ubiquitous... When we're
1: talking about political state, parties, mention, we John John tend to talk a lot about election night, right? Right. And there's this moment that I think is the most exciting, and it's where they've got this giant map in the studio... Uh, and there's an empty silhouette of a state, and then it flickers and it snaps either red or blue.
2: Yeah, that's when you, as a political person, your your heart either rises or sinks, right? When yeah. you see a state go for one candidate or another.
1: Do you know when that started? Red states, blue states.
2: Have we not had that for like forever, for decades and decades?
1: All right here, let me play something. This is from election night, 1980.
3: Votes And so we will put on our map, in blue, for those of you who are watching in color, uh, we'll make Florida our projected winner for Reagan.
2: Blue for Reagan? And This is 1980?
3: Yeah, hold on. Check this out. The uh, color of those in now, red across the western rim, the Pacific Rim of the United States, for Bill Clinton. And just a few uh, blue spots on that map for George Bush.
1: That was NBC coverage of the 1992 election. Democrats used to be red, and then they sort of switched. One station switched it to red for Republicans because they said we're coloring it red for Reagan. Uh, In the 1996 election, Clinton v. Dole, that was the first year that all three major networks had red for the GOP and blue for Democrats. But the terms, red state, blue state, they did not enter our common parlance until... It
0: appears that there will be a recount in the state of Florida. Uh, they still need to wait for, what is it? Uh, overseas overseas. ballots. ballots yeah. Bush v.
1: Gore? Yeah, because of the closeness of that race, the ensuing recount, America had been staring at a red and blue map for days. Uh, I saw a Vox video about this, actually, and it said that David Letterman was one of the first. He made a joke about blue states and red states, and the term Thank just God, stuck.
3: A minute too soon. Here's how it's gonna go. George W. Bush will be president for the red states <laughs> Al W. Gore will be president for the blue state.
1: And, and now Democrats embrace their blue. They put it in their campaign logos. We have terms like blue wave versus a red tide. And that division, that color polarity, is really new.
2: It's hard for me to wrap my mind around this idea that a party can rebrand itself that quickly based on this arbitrary choice made by a news network.
1: You think that's strange, Hannah? Hold on your little purple hat. I'm Nick Capadice.
2: I'm Hannah McCarthy.
1: And this is Civics 101. And today we're talking about the Democratic Party. Capital D. What it is, what it was, what it will be. And if we're going to talk about how the party has evolved over the years, we have to say what they're all about today. So let's go with their own words in their 2016 Democratic platform, the planks of which included addressing economic inequality, college debt, climate change, and access to health care. Uh, it is also today the party of inclusivity when it comes to issues like same-sex marriage, women's rights, and immigration.
2: So let's go back now. The genesis of the Democratic Party.
0: How did it start? The Democratic Party to make things really clear, began actually as the Republican Party. Oh, come on. I know. I'm sorry. I know.
1: This is Heather Wagner, by the way. She wrote the book, The History of the Democratic Party.
0: So the Democratic Party was founded by Thomas Jefferson uh, and other men like him who were dissatisfied with the direction the country was going under, uh, George Washington and John Adams. And they felt George Washington, John Adams... Alexander Hamilton were believers in a very strong central government.
1: And Jefferson wants a smaller federal government with more power given to the states. And he is our first democratic president even though he was called, sorry again, a republican, but pretty quickly the name gets changed by his opponents, funnily enough.
0: His critics said that he and his supporters were too much like the radical French. <laughs> Uh, who had sparked the French Revolution and led to bloodshed and violence in France. And as a critique, they were called this group of Republicans the Democratic Republicans. It was meant to be um, a diss. Jefferson and his supporters decided to adopt this almost as a point of honor and called themselves the Democratic Republicans.
1: And this was the founding of what we know today as the Democratic Party.
0: And how are
2: their beliefs related to what we think of now when we think of Democrats?
1: Okay, here's Kenesha Grant. She is a professor of political science at Howard University.
4: So when we think about the Democratic Party at that time... We don't think of it anything like the Democratic Party at this time. The Democratic Party at that time is liberal with a lowercase l, as scholars say. Uh, And that means that they don't want to see the government being very active. The government should not be involved in your life telling you what to do. The government should just kind of be around to make sure that things don't fall apart. Which is different from the party as we think about it today. We think about a Democratic Party today as one who is willing to step in to try to correct some of the perceived wrongs, they they might say, in the uh, economy. Or some of the perceived wrongs in the way that we treat humans and these other kinds of things.
2: How does it change? Because that to me is like 180 degrees.
1: All right, we'll get there. And that is Kenesha's particular bailiwick. But first, there is a big shift, and it starts with Andrew Jackson in 1829.
0: By the time Andrew Jackson is president, he has dropped the Republican from his affiliation. So he identifies himself as a Democratic candidate. Andrew Jackson was a Southerner. He was um, a slave owner. He was a war hero. Uh, he championed, even though he was a wealthy landowner, he championed the idea of sort of the ordinary man, common man around his his presidency with when white men, I should say, were given the right to vote based on age as opposed to if you had property or, or paid a certain amount in, in landowning taxes. So it was the evolution of voting rights towards white men over the age of 21 as opposed to landowners.
1: Quick side note, opponents of Jackson during the 1828 election called him a word that means donkey. Uh, But it was an epithet that Jackson embraced. Uh, He even put images of donkeys on his campaign posters. And that is when that all started. And the party that went up against Jackson was the National Republican Party. (laughs) But they were just as often known as the anti-Jacksonians. They did not like what Jackson had done to the role of president.
0: He took steps to concentrate power and to make sure that he was a very powerful executive. He had taken certain policies that really infringed on the rights of Native Americans and, and the rights of states. And this sort of sowed the seeds of what would gradually flare up into the start of the modern Republican Party and also the the disagreements that flared out into the Civil War.
4: So remember, they part of the story is that the parties want to maintain cohesion. They understand that it's difficult for minor parties, third parties, or smaller parties to win the presidency. It's difficult for them to win Senate seats uh, or seats in the House of Representatives and be uh, appointed to Senate seats. And because they are worried about Uh, splitting their power, they are trying to do everything they can to to remain together. And one of the things that splits them up more than anything else, kind of, I would say the thing that stresses the party the most is a conversation about slavery. And if we want to have a party that is unified in the North and in the South, we can't have this conversation about slavery because people in the North are going to disagree from people in the South. So we end up with these parties that exist in different ways because the one thing that they probably should be talking about, they are not talking about. So we end up with these cleavages kind of for that reason, where we have a Northern democratic party that looks different from a Southern democratic party. Uh, But eventually they do have that conversation and we end up with a Republican party that's more dominant in the North because they have had the conversation to come down on the side of black people, come down against slavery for various reasons. Again, uh, not all of them on the up and up. Settle where we have a party, again, Republican Party in the North, a Democratic Party that's kind of dominant in the South. And then we have some kind of debate about who's going to win the West and what the farmers want and whether or not uh, the parties will be willing to bend to the demands of the people who are in the West and who now have the ability to vote and influence politics, too.
2: All right, now I want to learn about that shift. How does the party that is the party of slavery the party of the Ku Klux Klan, become the party of the civil rights movement, the party that gives us our first African-American president.
4: So if you want to sound really smart with your friends, if you like know a political scientist and you want to get their gears going, you just say realignment, because uh, that, that is the one word answer to that question. Realignment happens And the parties change. Um, And so the political scientists argue about how realignment happens. I'm in the camp of people who think realignment is a slow and gradual process. The short version is that America changes. So in the story that we've been telling up to this point, there are folks who uh, live in the South. There are folks who live in the North. Uh, We don't yet have like a large wave of immigrants coming into the United States. Uh, So we get an industrial revolution, we get a world war, we get immigrants coming into the United States, and we don't yet in the nation have rules that are structured to prevent them from participating in the ways that we try to prevent them from participating now. And so it's kind of easier to get to citizenship, easier to get to participation in politics. And so a part of the answer about how the Democratic Party in particular becomes the party of the people as opposed to the party of the slave owners or the party of um, southern business interest, has to do with their decisions to or attempts to win elections, particularly, I would say, at the state and local level, uh, and to, to speak to the needs of immigrants.
1: Now, I do want to step in here and say that the North and the South are not just one unified thing. That's unfair. There were people who opposed slavery in the South, people who supported it in the North. Whites-only signs, uh, other forms of segregation in schools, businesses, housing. Those existed in the North as well as the South. And
4: as Kenesha told me, African-American voters are a huge part of the story. It's not just immigrants who are flooding into the cities. Black people are flooding into the cities. The Great Migration brings about 6.5 million Black people from the South into the North. And parties on the ground, local party leaders, mayors, aldermen, Governors have to contend with how they might get this block of voters to support them as well, which makes them take kind of steps towards civil rights that they might not otherwise take. And then
1: we have the Great Depression in the 1930s. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his party, the Democrats, said people are suffering. We need to do something. And what they did was the New Deal, relief, reform, recovery.
0: This is more than a political campaign. It is a call to arms.
1: What this did was further cement the notion that the Democratic Party is the party of big government spending on domestic programs and social welfare programs. But the civil rights movement, that initially was more allied by geography than by party. Almost 100% of northern Democrats in Congress supported the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but so too did 85% of Northern Republicans. Just 9% of Southern Dems and zero Southern Republicans supported it in Congress. So here's Patty Riley. He's a professor of history and humanities at Reed
3: College. But I mean, I think the key thing is that the Democratic Party has just, it's no longer become possible for Southern um, white supremacists to remain in the party because the, because the National Party has moved so hard on civil rights. I mean, that's Johnson's Lyndon Johnson's famous line, we lost the South for a generation. I mean, it turns out to be true, a generation and more at this point. Um, So I think effectively the South kind of becomes up for grabs um, because they're not going to remain in the Democratic Party. So is someone going to capitalize on them? And the Republicans do. I mean, that's just what happens.
2: I don't want to sound cynical here. Go Go ahead. It just kind of sounds like a big part of the reason that the Democrats completely reversed their positions. And just about everything was not purely because of ideals, but to court voters.
4: Well, I mean, I'm a political scientist, so I think everything is about political strategy, political expediency. Um, But yes, I, I think that one of the kind of biggest, broadest ways of understanding party history is that parties are trying to, one, maintain themselves, um, and then parties as groups who are willing to court coalitions in order to keep or maintain power. Black people are here. Uh, They want to have some kind of intervention on civil rights. We're not opposed to that. That seems like it could be okay for us. We think that they would help us win these local and state elections. We think that because they live in these states with large electoral college votes, they could help us win the presidential election. Let's test out a coalition between Black people and the Democratic Party. So it's the same kind of thing. Parties kind of moving and shape-shifting as they encounter groups so that they can maintain dominance. So Thinking about like the
2: party today versus the party then, there's a lot of um, arguing going on on social media about the problematic history of both parties, right? And I'm just wondering, like, given how different the parties are today from how they were at their genesis, is that even fair to do?
1: Yeah. People taking the Democratic Party to task for being the party of the KKK. Uh, I asked Patty about that specifically. That
3: accusation, in some sense, it seems like it has power partly because maybe we are just not open and public enough about just how deep and powerful the history of white supremacy is in the United States, you know. um, It shouldn't be possible for us to continue to, like, romanticize the past. So, you know, those accusations seem to have power just because we need to be more open.
1: So finally, with all that history under our belt, I asked Kanisha about the party
4: going forward, if she thinks there might be another realignment. Um, the Democratic Party is a big tent party. Keep these coalitions in mind. The Democratic Party has to please immigrants, black people, gay people, uh, progressive white people like they just just business interest for some people like people. There's just so many groups of people they have to be worried about. When you think about the Democratic Party or any party, particularly in a national election, they have to get in a room and fight it out. A party platform only so long and, you know, not everybody's going to read it, but it, it matters a lot to the party and it matters a lot to the messaging of the party. And so how do I say I really care about uh, urban development and I really don't like displacement of people as a result of gentrification? In some instances, that stuff is going to be in conflict. And so the Democratic Party has this difficult road to travel because they have to please all these different groups of people and these different groups of people have different interests. So the Democratic
1: Party has come a long way, changing names, switching positions on the way to the blue party we think of today. And that's the thing. These parties are always changing. So it's really hard to say what a Democrat is because there's not one answer and it depends on a ton of other things. And you can still see that push and pull of this Big Ten that Kanisha mentioned in the huge pool of Democratic candidates in the 2020 race.
3: So we need to pay teachers more because the data clearly shows that a good teacher is worth public his or her whole range colleges or and universities and HBCUs, debt-free.
0: I think I'm the only person on the stage who so has been a the public, public school, school
4: teacher. I have, have offered schools. and it's 10-1-8 favorite The triple amount of money we've been able to go four four back and get their GED and get eight their the Step one is
3: appoint the secretary of education who actually believes in public education.
1: Well, that will just about tie it all up in a big blue bow or a red bow, maybe, if it's pre the 1992 election. Today's episode was produced by me, Nick Capodice, with you, Hannah McCarthy. Thank you.
2: You're welcome. Our staff includes Jackie Fulton, Erica Janik is our executive producer, and her cut of the week, lots of stuff about a national bank. Thanks, Erica.
1: When it comes to salting her food, Maureen McMurray is liberal with a small L, as scholars say.
2: Music in this episode by Chad Crouch, Blue Dot Sessions, Diala, The Grand Affair, Reed Mathis.
1: And it wouldn't be a Nick Capodice episode without, worth the whiskey, Chris Zabriskie.
2: Civics 101 is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Hi. Right.